Can you think back over the years and remember someone that really went to bat for you? Someone that really stepped up to the plate as an advocate for you. Maybe it was actually an attorney who sought your best interest before the courts. Or maybe it was a realtor who went the extra mile in presenting your situation to a potential seller or buyer. Great teachers often fall into this, this kind of this, this role as well. Great teachers often do this kind of thing behind the scenes. They always have the best interests of their students in mind. They're rooting for their students every step of the way. But maybe the best human example that many could relate to is that of a parent. If that's not the case for you, I'm sorry. I have no intention to bring up painful memories for you. But generally speaking, parents want the very best for their children. Moms can say something critical about one of their children. But someone else say a critical word of them? Mm-mm. No, sir. No way, no how. You ever heard of mama bear syndrome? Moms and dads will do anything for their kid if they think it will help their kid. I invite you this morning to find the sixth book of the Holy Scriptures. It's called the book of Joshua. It's in the first half of the Christian Bible. It's the old, part of the Old Testament. And we'll be looking today at Joshua chapter number 10, which, if you're using a copy of the, of the Bible in the pew, is page 173. If you haven't been part of, the, of, of a worship service at Harvest in recent weeks or months, you should know that we are working our way through this historical book over the course of several months. The theme that we are observing throughout this whole book is that our promise-keeping, that, is, is that this book is a history of our promise-keeping God. This theme will again be playing in our text this morning, Joshua chapter 10. If you're not yet a Christian, if you've not yet been born again, our prayer is that you will be born again, that you will be converted soon, maybe even today. This passage that we will observe gives you hope, it gives you a word of, of mercy. Christian, for you, this passage also has good news. Joshua chapter 10 is, is comforting and it's also convicting. It's comforting because it presents the Lord as our warrior who fights for his children. And it's convicting because it reminds us of our own responsibility to draw close to him and the opportunity that we have to come to a king as we pray. This is why we considered Psalm 24 earlier in our service. It speaks of the King of Glory who was a warrior for us. Before we read any of Joshua 10, I'd like you to consider what is the big deal in your life today? Every Christian has something. What is life's hardship for you on June 9th, 2019? Is it a wayward child? Is it cancer? Is it an unbelieving spouse? Is it depression? Is it apathy? Is it a life-dominating sin? Is it financial pressure or discontentment of some sorts? Is there emotional upheaval 
struggles with the in-laws, or physical problems that you're dealing with? That's where we think of the good news of Joshua 10. God is not. God is not sitting idly by while you deal with life's hardship. God is fighting for you. Joshua 10, in Joshua 10, God both assures Joshua and proves to Joshua that he is fighting for him. And that's how we will organize our thoughts this morning. The assurances that he is fighting for us and the evidences that God is fighting for us. We begin with the assurances that God is fighting for us. And we'll, we'll note two of them from the passage. First of all, we'll note that God is keeping his covenant. Would you please follow along as I read the first seven verses. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king, so he had done to Ai and her king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made a peace with Israel and were among them. It came to pass that as they had heard that, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Hohem, king of Hebron, and unto Piram, king of Jarmuth, and unto Japhia, king of Lachish, and unto Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up unto me, and help me, that we might, might smite Gibeon, for it hath made peace with Joshua and with the children of Israel. Therefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their hosts, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent unto Joshua to the camp to Gilgal, saying, Slack not thy hand from thy servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Again, we are reminded that the word of the successes of Israel has now been spreading throughout the land. And now the king of Jerusalem is introduced to us here in Joshua chapter 10. In fact, this is the first time that the, that the city of Jerusalem is mentioned in the Old Testament. The king of Jerusalem is, is made aware that the Gibeonites had made peace with Israel. And when we're thinking back to chapter number 9, Israel had, had made a foolish treaty with the city of Gibeon. Gibeon could have been a part of a greater alliance. We read that in Joshua chapter 9, but they refused to do that. And instead, this city of Gibeon visited Israel wilily. That is, they, they did it with great deceit. They came with worn-out uh, wineskins and dilapidated sandals in an attempt to convince Israel they had come from a great distance away. Now, God permitted Israel to make treaties with those who were at great distances away. But those neighbors that were closer by, Israel was not to make peace treaties with them. In fact, that was because God had promised that land to Abraham and to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Once the, the Gibeonites' deceitful plan was made known to Israel, Joshua 
honored that agreement. Though the Gibeonites would now serve as be servants to the people of Israel. So now we see the king of Jerusalem knew that Gibeon was a great city, so he seeks to form his own coalition, as we read through verses 3 and 4. He's trying to form his own coalition to exact revenge on the Gibeonites. And we're not sure the, exactly the, the amount of time, the space, between Gibeon's deceitful agreement with Israel and Gibeon's call for help from Israel that, we're re, that we just read of in chapter 10. We are sure that the call for help came as we just read. Somehow, the Gibeonites managed to get an urgent appeal for help out of their besieged city and over to Joshua. What they're doing is they're redeeming their get-out-of-jail-free card, right? They're calling on Joshua. Uh, they, say, they say, Joshua, do not, be sla- do not slack your hand from your servants. In other words, the message from the Gibeonites to Joshua was this. Don't abandon us now. You promised us dot, dot, dot. I don't know about you, but if I were leading the children of Israel, I think the thought would at least have crossed my mind. Well, it serves you right, you Gibeonites. You double-crossed us once already. Joshua, after all, was a great military leader. So even from a strategic military perspective, Israel's victory against this coalition that was coming after Gibeon, their victory was not a foregone conclusion, if you're speaking, humanly speaking. Militarily speaking, Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, Eglon, all coming against Israel. Wouldn't it be easier? Wouldn't it be simpler just to deliver the Gibeonites over to the coalition versus honor the peace treaty? Joshua's response in verse 7. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Without delay, without Hesitation, Joshua marches up from Gilgal with all the warriors and the valiant men. God showed mercy again on the deceitful Gibeonites. Here's the takeaway. If Joshua honors the covenant that was founded on the basis of deceit, consider how much more secure is the covenant that God has made with us which was founded on Jesus Christ, with whom there is no deceit. God will not abandon his covenant. He is assuring you, Christian, he is assuring you that he is fighting for you by not abandoning his covenant. When you have wandered away like a stupid lamb, God will not back out of his covenant. When you have returned to the slop of your life-dominating sin, God will not back out of his covenant with you. You can be sure that God will honor his covenant with you. He will not back out. If he promises to to remove your sin as far as the east is from the west, he will do that. If he has covenanted with you to cover your sins in the blood of Christ, then you can be sure that he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all of your unrighteousness. First assurance, God keeps his covenants. Second assurance that he is fighting for us is that he is repeating his promises. Look at verse number 8. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them 
past tense, into thine hand. There shall not a man of them stand before thee. Now this sounds, if you've been with us for the, for the duration of this series, it sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? It reminds us of what we read in Joshua chapter 1, when God was giving Joshua and the children of Israel the first instructions to go across the Jordan and to take the, the promised land that God had, had given to, that was going to give to them. It, we read in Joshua chapter 1, jo- God's instruction to Joshua, Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread upon, that have I given unto you, as I said unto Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, even to the great river, the river Euphrates, and all the land of the Hittites, and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. And here it is, verse number 5, chapter 1. There shall not any man be able to stand before thee all the days of thy life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not fail thee. I will not forsake thee. It's a repeated promise. God's already told Joshua this. God's already told the children of Israel that he's not going to leave them, that he's not going to forsake them. But here we have in chapter number 10, God assuring them that he's fighting for them by repeating his promise to them. Nobody will be able to stand against you. That's emboldening. That's motivating. That's assuring. God refreshes his servant's mind. God repeats his promise to, de- to deliver the enemy into Israel's hand. God repeats his assurance that victory is coming. This must call to mind for the Israelites the, su- the success that they've already experienced in crossing the Jordan River and defeating Ai. God assures Israel that he will fight for them. One of the greatest One of the greatest ways that God assures us that he is fighting for us is via the repetition of his promises to you and to me. Each week I pray through the the church, the the, the names that appear on the back of the church calendar, the 10 connection group list. I pray through that. And one of my most common prayers for you as the people of Harvest Bible Church is that you will have many reminders of God's promises to you. I need to hear the promises of God. You need to hear the promises of God. That's why church attendance, that's why gathering together is important. We don't mark off and give you a star or a chart if you come to a church service. We come together. One of the reasons we come together is so we can be reminded that God is not going to leave us, that he's not going to forsake us, that he is with us, that he removes our sin, that he's going to provide for all of our needs, that he's going to guide us in this life. And yes, that Jesus is coming again. We need to be reminded of his good promises to us. When we hear and are reminded of God's promises, we are emboldened. We are supplied with courage, courageous faith. We are strong and courageous when the promises of God are rehearsed in our hearts and in our mind. You see, the God who promised Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through Abraham, the God who promised the Apostle Peter, that nothing could prevail against the church. And the God who is promising Joshua that the enemy would be defeated is the same God that fights for you and fights for me in 2019. God assures us by the repetition of his promises for us. Friend, God's promises of old are just as reliable today as they were on the day they were recorded in the Scripture. Rest in the assurance that God is fighting for you. God is not sitting idly by while you deal with life's hardships. God is fighting for you. He fights for us. He keeps his covenant. He repeats his promises. He assures us that he's fighting for us. 
But God is not only fighting via his assurances to, to us, he's also fighting via his, his, his divine actions. In other words, we see, we can see in this passage and we can see in our own life, evidences that God is indeed on our side, that God is indeed fighting for us. Look at verse number 9. Joshua therefore came unto the Gibeonites. He came suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. Now, we could read through that verse very quickly and miss something special. This is an amazing feat. It was about a 20-mile hike, taking about eight hours. It was done through the night. Joshua and his crew appear suddenly. I'm not a very friendly person during the night. When it's nighttime, I want to be sleeping. I want to be resting. If I'm not sleeping, maybe then eating or reading or watching a movie. But I don't want to be marching through the night, carrying all of the gear that was necessary to go to war as soon as I arrive at my point in the morning. While it was Joshua and his army who marched all night and took the Amorites by surprise or suddenly, it was Yahweh. It was Jehovah. It was God alone who took the decisive actions against the enemies. So the, Israel, the Israelite army appears suddenly, and then we see God move into action. We see God displaying his power, and we see God acting divinely on, the, on, uh, divinely acting on the behalf of his people. We'll note four ways that we see his actions. First of all, we see him with direct protection to his children. Look at verse 10. And the Lord discomfited them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased this coalition uh, uh, and chased them along the way that goeth to Beth Horon and smote them to Ezekiah and to Mekadah. Discomfited. God discomfited the enemy. Now what does this mean? This doesn't mean that God made them uncomfortable, that they had to use bed sheets that didn't have a high enough thread count or something like that. It was a great deal. It was a huge deal. God sent upheaval. The ESV says that God threw the enemy into a panic. The enemy was completely confused at this point. It wasn't just that they were disorganized. Rather, they were providentially sent into disarray. It was God-ordained panic. But note that through the panic, Israel was protected. Verse 11, And it came to pass, as they fled from before Israel, and as they were going down to Beth Horon, that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them unto Azekah, and they died, and more, and there were more which died with hailstones than they whom the children of Israel slew with a sword. It was the Lord who struck this great blow to the enemy. It was God that sent the hailstones. The enemy, enemy was being killed off by hailstones from the sky all around them. And more died that day by hail than by the sword of the Israelites. But did you think about this? Battle, right? They're all in there together. Israelites against the coalition that's coming against Gibeon. All the hailstones, as we read it, missed the children of Israel. We don't read that the children of Israel died. Any of the children of Israel were killed by the hailstones. It reminds me of the plagues that God sent into Egypt generations earlier. They mysteriously afflicted the Egyptians, but the Israelites were protected. 
God was fighting for his children by bringing panic and precision into the, the battle scene. He protected his children. Friend, whatever God allows in your life, you can trust him. God promises to bring protection to his children. That doesn't mean that you'll never get hurt. It doesn't mean that you'll always be safe. It doesn't mean that you'll never have pain in your life. But his protection is all within his perfect will. And every time that you look back and see that God protected you, you are given an evidence. You are given a proof that God is fighting for you. That God is on your side. God has protected you from so much you might not even be aware of. We see an evidence that God is fighting for us through his protection of his children. Secondly, we see through his provision of his children. God would not only fight for, uh, for his children by protecting them, but also by, by providing for them. Look at verse number 12. Then Joshua, then spake Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand thou still upon Gibeon, and thou moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Jasher? So the sun stood still in the midst of heaven, and hasted not to go down about a whole day. Joshua speaks to the sun. The sun stood still, and the moon stopped until vengeance against the enemy was accomplished. Well, this is certainly noteworthy. The event is also mentioned in the book of Jasher, an, an extra-biblical historical book. What in the world does this mean that the sun stood still? No small amount of ink has been spilt on explaining what actually happened in Joshua 10 with the sun and the moon. And even among the most conservative scholars, there is still a wide variety of possibilities that are put forward. Some would, would claim that it's their poetical words, that God refreshed his soldiers so much that they were able to do a day's fighting in less than half that time. So it was as if the day had been lengthened. Some say that the sun and the moon actually did stop. Our omnipotent God stopped the earth's rotation for a time, whereas Schaefer argues that God merely lengthened the hours of sunlight by some means. Uh, yet others would, would point to a miracle of refraction of the sun's rays, made it seem as if the sun and moon were out of their regular places. And then a fourth option that, that conservative scholars would put forward is that Joshua wasn't asking for more daylight hours, but was rather a, a release from the day's great oppressing heat. Now, probably any of these could be the case. It doesn't really matter. That's not the point. Each Christian can draw their own conclusion on what happened. But no Christian should miss this undeniable truth that something miraculous happened. The powers of nature have always been under the complete control of the Creator. And in Joshua 10... We see God governing the forces of, of nature in an unnatural way. Why? In order to provide his children with what they needed. That's the point. God somehow, some way, did the unnatural thing in order to provide for his needy children. 
Isn't that how you feel as a parent? Your children, you see that your children have some kind of genuine need. It's not that they come up to you and say, Dad, give me 20 bucks. It's that you see, before they even ask for it, that they are in genuine need of, of, of finances or of in guidance or in help in some way. What parent would not give their child anything that they could if they, need, if they knew that they, their child needed it? What parent would not want the son to stand still if they knew that their child needed that? Regardless of the conclusion of what you draw and what happened, Joshua 10 tells us that we know that God miraculously provided for his children. He turned water into wine. He turned small amounts of fish and bread into large amounts. He turned a boisterous sea into a calm sea. God does not hold back from his children. God says, what do you need? And I will give it to you. Nothing is too great for God. Friend, whatever your great hardship is, on this day, whatever you lack, it's not too big for God to handle. God can handle it. He will provide you with what you need because he is fighting for you. And it, it goes beyond him, him protecting us, and it goes beyond him providing for us. He, it, it comes to really the climax of the passage and that he is listening. A third way that he is, he is evidencing that he's fighting for us is that he is listening to his children. Look at verse number 14. And there was no day like that before it or after it. Here it is. That the Lord hearkened unto the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. The narrator of Joshua says there was no day like it before or after. Well, what made that day so special? What happens in verse 14 should be considered with the greatest magnitude in our minds. The King James says, the Lord hearkened unto the voice of man. The ESV says, the Lord heeded the voice of man. The NIV says, the Lord listened to a human being. Other translations even say that the Lord obeyed a human being. That is a big deal. God hearkened. He heeded the voice of a human. Why did God listen? Why did God hearken? Why did God heed the voice of a human? The end of the verse. Because the Lord fought for Israel. The most amazing thing is not that God made the sun and the moon stand still or whatever miracle happened. The most amazing thing that happened is that God listened to the voice of man. God heard the request and he answered and God answered man's request in a way that was in sync with his perfect will that was already being unfolded for his children. God answered the plea of his child while simultaneously working out his own plan. It's a phenomenal example of the power of a single person's influence through their prayer. Your prayer matters, Christian. Your prayers make a difference. God answers our prayers in a way that is fulfillment of his will. Now, we can't understand how all of this happens. We're not God. God's will happens. God's will happens. And we're called, we're instructed to ask God to do things. Those are not separate tracks that never meet. We ask God to do something, and God accomplishes will, his will at the same time. Only Jehovah God can do that. 
God listens to the voice of man and woman who comes to Him. The God who is seated on high stoops down and bends His ear to lips of dust and ashes. The Creator God of the universe. From a human perspective, it's as if He stops everything. Sun, moon, all the prayers and all the actions of everything else that's happening in all of the world. And when we come to God, it's like all of that is hit, is hit on pause. And He hears us. God hears us when we pray. He hearkens to us. 1 John 5 says, And this is the confidence that we have in Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. James reminds us that we often do not have because we do not ask. God has not invited you to be a person of prayer only to see if you will obey His instruction to you. God has invited you to pray so that He can give you what you need, so that you can, He can give you what you ask for. God, your Father, desires to give to you, His child, all that you ask for, all that you need. Don't only ask for daily bread. Ask for the sun to stand still. How do you pray for your spouse? Do you pray general prayers? Or do you ask the God of the universe to rescue your spouse from the entanglements of a life-dominating sin? How do you pray for your children? Do you ask God to keep them physically and mentally and emotionally pure? In our world, you might as well be asking God to make the sun stand still. How do we pray as a church? Do you gather with your brothers and sisters in Christ on Wednesday evening in our fellowship hall to ask God to do mighty things? We have not because we ask not. We forget the truths of the song that we sang this morning. Come, my soul, with every care. Jesus loves to answer prayer. He himself bids you to pray. He will never turn you away. You are coming to a king. Large petitions with you bring. For his grace and his power are such that none can ever ask too much. How do you pray? How do you come to your king? What petitions are you bringing to him? The evidence of that he is fighting for us. He's protecting us. He is providing he is listening. And then in verses 15 through 43, we see that He is delivering His children. 15 through 43 describe how God repeatedly was fighting for His children by delivering them from the enemy. We won't read the entire chapter, the, the entirety of the rest of the chapter here this morning. You can do that later this day, but over and over we see what the Lord was doing to the enemy. Look at chapter 10, verse number 15. I'll read part of the remaining part of the chapter here. Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, unto the camp to Gilgal. And these five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Machadah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found in the cave of Machadah. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it for to keep them. 
And stay ye not, but pursue your, after your enemies, and smite the hindmost, part, the hindmost of them. Suffer them not to enter into their cities. For the Lord your God hath delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they were consumed, that the rest which remained of them entered into fenced cities. And all the people returned to the camp to, the camp to Joshua at Machedah in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so. And they brought forth those five kings unto, the, unto him out of the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they brought out those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near, put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near, and put their feet on the necks of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of a good courage. For thus shall the Lord do unto all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hanged them on five trees. And they were hanging upon the trees until the evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Joshua commanded, and they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave where they, wherein they had been hid, and laid great stones in the cave's mouth, which remains until this very day. And that day Joshua took Machedah and smote it with the edge of the sword, and the king thereof he utterly destroyed them, and all the souls that were therein. He let none remain, and he, and he did to the king of Machedah as he did unto the king of Jericho. Here we see what the Lord did to the enemy. They... Joshua called for the kings to come forward and the leaders of Israel put their feet on the necks of these kings. This was not a barbarian move. It was a, a custom of that day. But more than that, these leaders' feet on the necks of the kings was, was a parable. It was a sign of assurance. Joshua even follows it up in verse 25. Hey, be strong and of great courage. God is giving you the victory. God is delivering you from the enemy. It was intended as a visible encouragement to the people of God. They had been delivered by God, just like a rainbow in the sky for Noah and the stars of the sky for Abraham. Here was a visible reminder to the children of Israel that God was fighting for them. When we come to the Lord's table, and we eat of the bread and we drink of the cup, we have a visible reminder that God is delivering us. God is fighting for us. When we see someone baptized and we see the water wash over them as they are immersed into that water, we're reminded that because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we can be dead to sin and alive together with Christ. We have a visible reminder that God is fighting for us. But it didn't end there. I'll fly through these remaining remaining part of the chapter, but listen to some of these verbs. Maybe you can catch them with your eyes as I, as I go through. Verse 29, Joshua passed through Machedah and all of Israel with him unto Libna and fought against Libna, and the Lord delivered it also, and the king thereof, into the hand of Israel. Verse 31, Israel fought against Lachish. Verse 32, the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel. Verse 33, 
Joshua smote Horam, verse 33b. Joshua smote, verse 34. Joshua fought against Eglon, verse 35. And the souls that were in Eglon to Joshua were utterly destroyed. Verse 36, Joshua fought against Hebron. Verse 37, Hebron, they took it. Verse 38, Joshua fought against the beer. Verse 39, he took the beer. Look at verse 40. So Joshua smote all the country of the hills, and of the south, and of the vale, and of the springs, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed, as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And then verse 42, And all these kings, their land did Joshua take at one time. Why? Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. God was delivering his children. God was fighting for Israel. Throughout the second half of the chapter, we see enemy after enemy, both confronted and then conquered. Israel confronted an enemy, and the enemy was conquered. God was fighting for his children. Just because God is in control doesn't mean that his children are off the hook. There are verbs that God is accomplishing stuff, and there are verbs in this ending of that chapter that the children of Israel was accomplishing stuff. It was both and. God's sovereignty does not remove human responsibility. One pastor put it this way, the God who ordains the end also ordains the means to the end. You have a responsibility. Whatever hardship you identified at the beginning of this service, whatever hardship you face on this day, the call is not for you to sit back idly either to see what God does to fight for you. No, the call is to discipline yourself to walk obediently through the hardship, to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the evil one. Who has fought for you? An attorney? An agent of some sort? A teacher? A parent? Creator God fights for his children like no other. God is not sitting idly by while you deal with life's hardships. God is fighting for you. Israel was displacing national enemies and was obtaining a, a geographical inheritance. And she needed God to fight for her. You haven't been called to displace any national enemies. But no doubt, you need God fighting for you. The hardships of this life that you can identify reveal your need for His help. And He is fighting for you. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He did predestinate, them He also called. And whom He called, them He also justified. And whom he justified, then he also glorified. What shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Christian, in the face of any life hardship, be reminded from Joshua 10 that your promise-keeping God is fighting for you. He cannot break his covenant with you. He has given you his word, which repeats his promise to you over and over He is protecting you. 
He is providing for you. He is listening, heeding your prayers. And ultimately, ultimately through the second Joshua, through his son, Jesus Christ, he is delivering you. He, who didn't even spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all 